Welcome to Side Projects. Yes. Welcome to Side Projects. I like that. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. Welcome to Side Projects, everybody. I'm Brian. And I'm Amy. Today, we are very excited because we are going to be talking about and sharing an article written and recorded by none other than co-host and co-founder of Cut the Craft, Amy Umble. <laughs> you should also say, I'm I'm like really worried about people thinking that I'm like a narcissist or something. And so <laughs> I feel like you should say that it, you, it took you a really long time to convince me to do this. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, I should say it took me a very long time to convince Amy to do this <laughs> because... <laughs> <laughs> that was my actually my first idea for side projects ever was, oh, Amy, you should share your article. And Amy was like, oh, you know what? I shouldn't do that. I don't want to. <laughs> but I, for, I really, I like the idea of you reading the article because that was the first way in which I heard it. So then you shared it right before it had been published. And I was like, oh man, this is so good. Um, It was at that moment I knew we would be friends. I'm just kidding. We had known each other for like two years. (laughs) Or maybe It took that long. You were like, okay. (laughs) I was like, I don't know about this one. No. Um, (laughs) But but yeah, so it just, I really loved it and it resonated a lot with a lot of the goals that I have in my own work. And I think- that even though it is woodworking centric, uh, because it was appearing in a woodworking magazine, which we'll talk about, right? Um, I think it does have you know a very strong um, resonance with other crafts of mm-hmm. any any sort of creative process, right? Right, or even just people who are interested in being outside. I feel like no, um, no, it doesn't apply to them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it does. It's just like being outside and. Um, participating with nature in a whatever way that you can, basically. The article premiered, the, the article dropped this spring, um, hot off the press. <laughs> and I think currently it's still the most, it's the most current issue, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of Mortis and Tenon Magazine, mm-hmm. which now that we've brought them up, Amy, would you tell us a little about Mortis and Tenon? Mortis and Tenon is a magazine that is focused on woodworking, but they also, they're sort of talking to makers, current makers, conservators, and scholars, and they're doing interviews and essays. There's some tutorials um, in the magazine. So it's not just, it's not just a DIY sort of publication. And it's also independently published so there's not a whole lot of advertisements or anything in it it's i really like it because of that reason where i feel like i'm actually getting (laughs) information (laughs) instead of most of it being an an advertisement for you know some kind of tool or something and their packaging is really great (laughs) right right yeah (laughs) but that you know they spend a lot of time kind of curating i think 
the magazine itself and mm-hmm. putting a lot of emphasis behind what they want it to be. And um, I guess that I'm not implying that other magazines don't do that, but there's like an intention behind Mortis and Tenon that I really appreciate. Definitely. So, yeah. And they have a yeah. website and everything. So you can order the magazines online, Mortis and Tenon mag.com mortis and tenon mag.com mm-hmm. and it's like a biannual publication i always forget yes. if biannual means every other year or twice a year but it's twice a year <laughs> twice a year yeah basically spring and fall I, i'm sure the next one will be coming out pretty soon i don't know exactly when that is but yeah and also of course thank you to the fine folks at mortis and tenon magazine for allowing us to share the article mm-hmm. um and if any part of this article resonates with you, be sure to check out their website because there's a whole lot more where that came from in their other publications. And it really is mm-hmm. like all over. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I'm, I do like baby's first woodworking caliber of woodworking. <laughs> and so it's like, even I get a lot out of it because there's so much like philosophy and kind of lifestyle stuff built into it as well, mm-hmm. which I really like. Mm-hmm. And I guess before we get into um, the article, we should, we have um, an announcement. Um, number one, mm-hmm. our, we have a sponsor, an actual Woo-hoo! sponsor. Yeah. Um, and so huge thank you to the John C. Campbell Folk School for reaching out to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're really excited to be partnering with them and for their support of the podcast. And we wanted to share a little bit about what they have coming up mm-hmm. uh, in the next months. <laughs> the next months. Yes. So <laughs> yes, thank you, John C. Campbell, um, for supporting and sponsoring the podcast. And in October and November, the Folk School is offering a series of virtual discussions led by master artists. Topics include Appalachian basket making, weaving and music. And for more information, you can visit the school's blog at blog.folkschool.org. Yes, and the school is also gearing up for their lineup of 2021 classes, and they're accepting scholarship applications for all 2021 week and weekend classes in a wide range of subjects from blacksmithing, fiber arts, woodworking, jewelry, and clay. Scholarships are open to ages 18 and over and include tuition, housing, and meals. And for more information, you can visit the school's website, folkschool.org, and click on the scholarships link. Yeah, so that's two different links that both take you to folk school related activities. Mm-hmm. We have blog.folkschool.org and just folkschool.org. So mm-hmm. be sure to check both of those out to find out the full range of possibilities <laughs> for later this fall and next year. <laughs> but yeah, let's get down to it. Let's get to the article. Tell us about the brook trout, Amy. Okay. <laughs> This is an article I wrote called A Sense of Place, and it was published in Mortis and Tenon Magazine, issue number eight. There are a few fat brook trout in the cold mountain stream that runs through my neighbor's farm. On occasion, I walk to the bridge that once held back a bulging mill pond, peer over the edge, and dodge my head back and forth to miss my own reflection. Sometimes they aren't there. It's too warm, or they're hiding in a place that I'm not able to see but more often than not, I'm rewarded, and I see them there bathing in icy water. Brook trout are very susceptible to changes in their habitat. They prefer cold, clean water in order to maintain a stable population. 
particularly sensitive to low oxygen, pollution, and changes in pH, they are considered an indicator species, one that gauges the overall health of an environment. I'm happy they are still living in the stream my neighbor protects. I see them there, and I feel reassured. When I think about these trout, I think about myself living together with them. We share this place. They spend their days doing brook trout things. I spend mine doing human things, and hopefully we don't have conflict. When making decisions, I take beings like the brook trout into consideration as much as possible. I care very much for my brook trout companions. After all, they indicate the health of my local environment. I believe my upbringing has something to do with this perspective on my connection with the plants and animals with whom I share space. I grew up in an area in the U.S. that can best be described as prime timberland. We live directly on the Mason-Dixon line and about a mile from West Virginia as a crow flies. I did all the things you might expect when you think of rural living in the U.S. I helped can vegetables from the garden every summer, and we had family gatherings centered on harvesting corn. We children built and maintained hay castles in the barn and split and stacked firewood in the fall. My mother taught us how to manage our garden and pick the harvest. Pinch this bean. See how plump it is? That means it's ready. My father took us on walks on Sundays and we identified trees. Here, bite this twig. What is it? My brother and I would nibble and exclaim, Black birch! Dad would nod in agreement. Being connected to our resources made an impact on how we lived growing up and continued to affect the way I lived after returning home to start my career as a woodworker. I had the ability to pursue both conventional and green woodworking because I lived in an area where I could carefully select and cut a tree down for my carving interests while making furniture and smaller items out of kiln-dried lumber supplied by our hobby sawmill. My environment made it easy to become a woodworker. Eventually, I became interested in carving small items that I could use in my daily life. Spoons, bowls, cups. I had caught the green woodworking bug. It made sense to me to keep this creative work as simple as possible. Find tree, cut down tree, make things. I quickly found myself seriously dedicated to carving, and I had the urge to decorate the things I was making. I hunted for a connection to something larger than myself, some sort of cultural symbolism. After some internet sleuthing, I was strongly drawn to Sami designs from northern Scandinavia, most likely because my spoons are based on Swedish spoon carving traditions. But it felt wrong to use Sami symbols in my work. Trying to navigate this fascination was difficult. I was so drawn to their designs and symbolism, but it seemed like cultural misappropriation to cover the things I was making with designs from another culture, a culture that maintained a rich tradition of meaning behind those symbols. I wondered why I was so attracted to having that personal connection to specific symbols. After some thought, I realized it was really about having some sort of cultural identity, feeling connected to people, place, and land. The tension I felt came from a sense of detachment from my own cultural identity, an identity that can be a difficult thing to grapple with as a citizen of a colonial country with such a recent and heartbreaking history. I needed a place to start. What is something my grandmother would recognize, I asked myself, and immediately thought of quilt piecework, part of a heritage that is held close to the heart of my family. Most of the women I'm related to have been involved in textiles in some way, and I felt a special connection to the history and tradition of American quilt making. 
As I thought more about it, I realized that the meaningful link that I possessed to this form of folk art could become a relevant part of my own tradition and cultural identity. After wrestling with these difficult questions of tradition, cultural narrative, and creativity, I met Swedish Sloyd craftsman Yoga Sundquist. We were at Greenwood Working Fest in Massachusetts, and I happened to sit across from him at breakfast. I was eating my oatmeal with a spoon I had carved and painted with a quilt pattern called Ohio Star. After I finished, he looked over the table at me and took my spoon. Have you made this? he asked. Yes. Oh, it's very good. And he handed it back to me. Later, he and Beth Moen, another skilled Swedish carver, approached me to learn more. Was the pattern something local from my area in the U.S.? I told them both about the quilting traditions where I'm from and about my family's strong ties to the art. The next time I saw yoga, he invited me to his workshop in Sweden. I couldn't miss that opportunity. When I travel, I spend most of my time listening and watching. I'm usually very quiet and observer. As a matter of fact, it typically takes me at least a year to process what I learn after traveling. I consider it part of a transformative inner experience that manifests in the work I make as a carver. Traveling to Sweden started an important inner dialogue about handwork, craft, art, the land, and my role in all of these. I learned that most houses in northern Sweden are painted red, not because red is the best color, but because iron oxide was a byproduct of the copper mines in that area, and it was the least expensive paint a farming family could buy to protect the outer walls of their wooden homestead. This connection to their immediate environment made the choice for them. To paint the homestead red became synonymous with northern Swedish tradition. The same seemed true of using split pine for weaving baskets and birch for carving treen. The historic use of these trees has more to do with their abundance than with being the best possible material. Let me be clear, these species are perfectly suited for their intended use, but in some areas of the U.S., we are accustomed to considering only ash and oak for basketry. Split pine works just fine. It's not that the Swedes have a secret password to handwork, but learning to use local materials from them is a great advantage for some of us in North America who have a similar climate and a few of the same trees. It makes translation easier. I returned to the U.S. feeling a little conflicted. I had spent time with Beth Moen and Annalie Carlson on my last week of travel, and they had both shared their individual transformative experiences relating to their work. True craftswomen with backgrounds in design they had at one time made studio-quality furniture, but decided they didn't enjoy what they were making. It didn't make them happy, and they both decided that they were no longer going to try to live up to the idea of what they should be doing, but to start making what they actually wanted to make. That, for me, was a very important distinction, which helped me question my own motivation in my work. So having observed all of these things in Sweden, the questions of motivation were in the back of my mind, simmering. A chance meeting with a fellow carver, Happy Kittle, on a woodworking trip to Australia brought me back to his studio to watch and listen to his thoughts on art and craft. Happy is a self-proclaimed sculptor who works in wood. Originally from New Zealand, he is Maori, a greenstone carver turned jeweler turned wood sculptor. One of the first conversations I had with him was about how culture is directly related to people's experience with the land. This statement solidified something that I could feel and see but had no words for until that conversation. 
How was my cultural identity related to the land? Up until that moment with Hape, I had squinty-eyed thoughts about how green woodworking might translate to other cultures and bioregions. Could I really champion my version of green woodworking to someone who lived in the desert of Arizona or Northern Territory in Australia? Did that make any sense? Maybe there are other ways for artisans to creatively connect with their environment. Through all of this searching, I've come to believe that we as humans in the world should be crafting things using the materials available to us in our specific bioregion. To be clear, I'm not suggesting a dogmatic approach, but a macrocosmic understanding of what surrounds us. I, as a resident of a certain latitude and environ, have access to specific types of wood. I use what is available, what actually grows here, and that changes if I travel. The tools I typically use are specific to the type of woodworking I do and the hardness of the trees I use. Harvesting times are specific to hemisphere and types of forest. All the nuances help me question how I should relate to my Western colonial culture. How does what I'm making fit into the world? Am I contributing something of value, or am I a part of a larger problem? Should everyone be carving the way I've been taught? Traveling gives opportunities for many unique experiences. I've touched the pyramids of Egypt, humbly observed burning funeral pyres in Kathmandu, and witnessed 20,000-year-old ochre paintings in Australia. In Sweden, I marveled at the knowledge that the house-sized boulders, which seemed out of place in a flat field, were, in fact, flung there by giants. That frost is actually created by the breath of Thor's horses. Upon hearing these explanations, I was stung by the sharp pang of loss. Where I am from, frost just kills your tomato plants. Every place I've traveled has a culture rooted to an ancient past that is missing in my personal colonial context. We've cut ourselves off from seeing our connection to the land. Speaking in broad terms, this cultural connection is missing in the U.S. However, in braiding sweetgrass, First Nations biologist Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer explains the reciprocal relationship humans have with the earth that we are, regardless of cultural identity, part of something larger than ourselves and can positively affect our relationship with the rest of our natural community. Often, in most indigenous cultures around the world, this cultural truth is reinforced with ceremony and tangible symbols of that relationship. If we turn our attention to First Nations artist Bo Dick, we see the role of the artist craftsperson in a harmonious incarnation. Bo Dick, was a Northwest Coast artist whose work stands firmly in two worlds, a culturally significant context of his own native framework and in contemporary art galleries. As a chief artist and activist, he reinforced the best example of craft as an expression of a collective set of beliefs that are upheld from outside the artist's ego. Dick was using his unique talent his artistic lens to make concrete the deeply held spiritual beliefs of his culture. He created works which not only used his creative voice, but tapped into our inextricable connection to everything around us. This, I think, is the highest calling of a creative person, and it leaves me feeling hopeless and sad for what has been lost in the torrent of American popular culture. I ultimately believe that collectively, we would be better off recognizing our spiritual connection to what is right outside our homes. It can be found in the growing forests and racing water. If we recognized our link to the brook trout's life, 
Would we be as willing to make changes that affected the quality of the water and push it further upstream into the dark corners of the creek? It is valuable to have tangible access to this link, and craft is a fantastic way to become more connected with your media environment. It could be found in working with birch if you're in Maine or Sweden, or wild cherry in Pennsylvania, or hue and pine in Tasmania. If a project needs glue, it can be made with pitch or boiled hide. If it requires cordage, it can be made with dogbane or nettle. Resources are abundant. My point is, recognizing the relationship and the reciprocity with the land is what is important. Being connected to the earth is important. I dare say it, that's what's missing. What if we were to look upon the things we make as the manifestations of a spiritual connection to the world around us? The methodical decision-making of a timber framer. The slow meditation of cutting a mortise and tenon from local greenwood can be as much a part of spiritual living as the ethereal concepts of enlightenment and discipleship. Thinking of my great-grandchildren as possible inhabitants of a timber frame is a powerful testament to seeing connections in all things. Paying attention to how the trees are harvested and how they impact the environment around the timber frame is equally important to this understanding of how to be in the world. Personally, when I carve, I feel this missing link in my culture. I'm jealous of the craftsperson who has thousands of years of continuous history to draw upon. This craftsperson grows upon a deep taproot that can stand up to the whirlwind of pop culture. When I'm carving, I also want to tap into something larger than myself. If I'm telling a story with my work, I prefer it to be accessible to a wider audience. I like concepts that most folks can understand, or at least recognize. I don't want people to blinkingly step into an art gallery and read a paragraph on the wall in order to understand what I'm doing. I want everyone to make the connection to story and place immediately. I can see it in my mind's eye. Ah, yes, the brook trout ladle. We bring it out in the spring when the stream is rushing. The snow melts off the hemlocks and drips cold, fat drops on the back of your neck. That's my place. That's where I should be as a craftsperson, to make objects worthy of the brook trout. One could do no better. Yes! I love it! It's so good! It never gets old. That's like the third, that's the fourth time for me. Really? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know, it's just, it's a, uh, as far as I'm con- in my personal canon, that's the that's a instant classic. Um, <laughs> no, well, yeah, I think um, I mean one of the things that I really loved about it was um, the you know historic use of certain materials has to do more with the like l- abundance of that material for mm. the people making mm-hmm. rather than just because it's the best thing and mm-hmm. it's not. And then you say you go on to say that. It is well suited for that purpose and in many cases perfectly suited for it, but it also has to do more with the local abundance. Like mm-hmm. they didn't export birch from all over in order to get it. There. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah, they just yeah. had it and so they used it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's really true. And it, like you think about um, use of hazel in England and I was thinking about this the other day because we have native hazelnut trees in the United States, at least on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. I haven't done tons of research about this species, but 
it comes up like a weed. I mean, it's like, there's no stopping this, this tree. And I just planted it in my yard. And then I was like, oh no. Is that the one that shoots up like a million, like a million little skinny shoots? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, okay. it, it comes, it's like a bush sort of, you know, it's not, it doesn't, it's not like a maple shrubby. tree or something. Like it's a shrubby, bushy, right. tangled mess. And, and it has a lot of food. I mean, you get hazelnuts from it, but, mm-hmm. but I was thinking about it and I thought, well, instead of just deciding that this thing is going to be some, you know, uncontrollable, horrible, invasive it's not invasive because it's a native plant but like just out of control shrub that i'm gonna have tenacious yeah yeah i'm gonna have to like battle every year or something it's like no actually it's providing (laughs) it's providing all of this free material that grows really quickly and is has a lot of uses like Mm -hmm. you can use hazel for all sorts of things i think they used hazel for I don't know what I don't know what else to call them other than like they're like staples kind of for thatching roofs in England and you have to use like oh, cool like 1000 of them or something to to keep the <laughs> <laughs> to like pin all the the thatch to the roof mm-hmm. and they used hazel uh and that makes sense because it it's prolific it's all over the place especially once you get it started and so Instead of thinking of that resource as a weed that's taking over your yard, it's like, oh, no, I have all this material. I can make trellises for my garden. Um, if yeah. it's big enough, I'm sure I could carve it. It's just like instead of seeing the natural world as like encroaching, you could say, oh, no, look at this. It's awesome. I have all this free material. I don't have to go to Lowe's and buy a plastic I don't know, fence or something. I could build one. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's, I think it is interesting though, because um, I know this, uh, you know, true life confessions here. <laughs> um, there's like this weird tendency though, where it's like, oh, like the things I need couldn't, well, this is, might be an exaggeration, but it's kind of the, the things I need couldn't possibly be this easy to get. Um, it has to, if you want to get something from nature, it's gotta be really hard. Um, and that, you know, it's, but it's kind of, there's sort of like, if something grows in abundance, like this hazel or, you know, where I mm-hmm. grew up in South Carolina, there were like a few like bamboo patches that kind of got out of hand. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> and it's just everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, um, at least in this one area. And so it was like, oh yeah, like, well, that's no longer like exotic, so it's not really as fit for use. Oh, and yeah. I'm more just saying this from the perspective of, from like how I used to think about things. Mm-hmm. I obviously don't agree with that statement, and I think it's kind of laughable now, but it is just kind of interesting how that that sort of mindset can influence people's willingness to partake in their local environment. Because Mm -hmm. everybody's locale has something to offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm reflecting on my experience with the green woodworking Sloyd, which is Sloyd is the term. um, I think Dawson talked about it in his interview, but like that Mm -hmm. it's basically just like handcraft. It's a Swedish word for handcraft that you kind of make at home. You don't have to be like an official craftsperson to make, you know, there was this idea that, 
or at least my perception was that you had to use birch. Like that was the the best wood to use for mm-hmm. slowed handcraft and all that kind of stuff. And it's really just because ha- we have so much influence in this green woodworking handcraft world from Sweden. And it doesn't mean that like birch is the best you like <laughs> you can only <laughs> right. use birch and it's the only thing that's that's a good resource or material to be to carving with it's just not true there's so many different trees yeah. in the world and like you need to look at the qualities of why that material is a good material you know it, it's chosen for a specific reason and those specific reasons can be applied to other materials um, depending on where you are in the world, you know? Yeah. And I, I will say though, I do feel like in recent time, like in less than a year, uh, I feel like there's been a big shift in that, right? I mean, wouldn't you say maybe even because of your article partially or something, but <laughs> I do feel like there's, <laughs> sorry, I just love this article, y'all. <laughs> Um, but I mean, I do feel like I've seen more people exploring, at least in the States, like I've seen a lot of cherry spoons. I've seen a lot of beach spoons. I've seen a lot of walnut spoons and, and maple and things that grow here in abundance in areas that aren't just like Maine and Minnesota or whatever, if that makes sense. I think one of the things is that, you know, my experience is my own. And so I don't know that these things that that I've picked up on are necessarily something that everyone in the community would say is a true thing. You know what I mean? Like, Well, Amy, if you're trying to make some dogma, you're going to have to work a little harder to get a few more <laughs> adherence to your cause. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, my dogma is anti-dogma. <laughs> um, you know, I... I don't I don't want to sound like this is how it has been always and like my experience is mm-hmm. the only experience because if you were to talk to maybe Dawson I think that he would say yeah maybe but also probably not like <laughs> cuz that's how he answers <laughs> No he things. would no 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 he doesn't answer with maybe and probably not it's always both and so he both would say and. yes I agree with that and there's more <laughs> Right right So sorry Dawson for putting words in your mouth Right <laughs> there probably is a little bit more potentially to to stuff that people had going on and their reasons for using these materials but at the same time like it seems like it could be a little broader i mean in a way Uh it has to be because we're all living here and so we got to make the most of what we got um, mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. mean, I mean, everyone's living somewhere and they need to look around <laughs> with what they have access to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Another thing that I loved about your article is when you're talking about, um, I mean, and it kind of, all of this ties in, obviously it was a very like cohesive article. Well done, Amy. <laughs> um, have I told you I like the article? Um <laughs> But you you talked about the highest calling of a creative person, um, and you saw this reflected in the work of Bo Dick, was that mm. uh, he made works that use his own creative voice, but also tap into our connection to everything around us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's more or less a direct quote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, 
And so I just, I felt like I really like that, that part. There's like, you know, this little piece of like, oh yeah, that's Bo or that's Amy. But then there's this whole thing that's like, that's also me. And Mm -hmm. I really, I love that idea of just like, there is that uniqueness that's coming from the, from the, the person who made it. But then it's also this thing that acknowledges that it's in a much broader context Mm -hmm. um, or part of a greater whole. And Mm -hmm. I really, I think that one way to accomplish that is just by acknowledging your local surroundings for what, and whether that's for materials like you're talking about here with woodworking or in your subject matter, if, you know, I don't know, it's like not everyone who works with metal can like go and smelt their own like <laughs> <Right>. ore and, <laughs> you know, it's like sometimes you have to get that from other places. Of but course, yeah. for instance, Will's knives, Will likes, loves trying to use recycled materials from vaguely his area he's in, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. it's like that's one way, another way in which to acknowledge the context that you're coming from. Yeah. Um, and things like that. So I don't know. I just, I really like that part of it. And it's something that I try to think about with the tools I make, like all the handles are from local hardwoods, but mm-hmm. um, when I have the ability to make up my own tool designs, uh, which I guess I always have that ability, but when I do it now, <laughs> I think, uh, I think a lot more of like, well, what little, what design sort of reflects like what I'm thinking about right now, like whether it's a leaf from a tree that I saw or a flower mm-hmm. or something, or, like uh, a little Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes or something like that. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I think that that what we're talking about is like an intangible quality or like a, we're talking about a basically an energetic connection that you have to Mm -hmm. a place and you're and the symbol for that energetic connection is the thing that you're making. So, um, so for you, if it's you, you go for a walk in the beach forest and you see a leaf, then you're like, oh, it's so beautiful. And it reminds me of when I'm walking with Wren in the woods and the, the air is really crisp and it just frosted and it smells a certain way. I mm-hmm. think that that is really important and it's what makes humans human (laughs) you know it's (laughs) and to to want to put that into your work i think is is of the it's like the highest calling and and i don't Mm -hmm. that is what's missing in like giant manufacturing places and it's what david pye talks about it's like that human human connection and the humanness of making that that is important and that people respond to, you know, if you say, Oh, I, yeah, Mm -hmm. I made that myself. And I was thinking about, you know, my walk with the dog on the woods and that's why I did this. And people were like, Oh, you know, that reminds me of this story that I have in my life. And, and, you know, they connect, they connect with that because that's the nature of being a human is that you're creating, (laughs) (laughs) you're creating these connections and that is not quantifiable. It's this thing that we share that is invisible, but it's there. And, you know, that right. recognition, I think, is what makes those connection making processes important. Totally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Get me started. I won't stop. 
<laughs> no, I love it. Uh, it was funny because the last bullet point that I had about it was uh, connection to time and place, which is exactly <laughs> what you just said. So I don't. E- we don't even need to talk about it more. We don't even need to um, cross that off. And I don't know. I would be interested to know what what other people think about this if they feel like writing us an email or something. Mm, Cut the craft mm-hmm. podcast at gmail dot com. I think. Yeah. It would be really cool just to hear kind of people's perspective or maybe their own experiences or maybe just to, you know, tell us that we're full of it and that <laughs> that makes no sense and that, like, I don't know what I, where I was going with that. I don't I don't um, want that. <laughs> I don't want that. No, I don't want if that. If you critique, don't be a meanie. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Don't tell us you're full of it, but tell us your opinion. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> Wait, did I say tell us you're full? I meant tell us we're full of it. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah. yeah, just don't insult us. I mean, yeah. just be nice. <laughs> just but be you nice. can disagree with us. That's great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I hope that everyone enjoyed the article as much yeah. as I did, or at least a <laughs> fraction as much. If, if they enjoyed it a fraction as much as I did, then I think they'll have still enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have anything else to add? I don't think so. Um, other than I am really interested in people's responses. That would, yeah, that would be great. So please, everybody, if you if you have it in you or you feel moved. Please feel free to email us, uh, cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com, mm-hmm. and let us know your thoughts. But other than that, thank you all so much. Thank you, John C. Campbell Folk School. Thank you, Mortis and Tenor Magazine. Mm-hmm. And thank you to you, our listeners. Um, it's We really like doing these side projects. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. See you next time. 